We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. And when we say God glorified, what we mean is that we exist for the purpose of seeing God receive praise, worship, honor, glory, credit, and fame. We believe that he is due. And so we want to spend our lives, our words, everything pointing back to Jesus. Right? It's why when you come here, we say our one desire is that when you leave here, that you'll marvel at Jesus more. that we chose the name Emmaus, the vision of our church is that we want to be a people who declare who Jesus is from all of the scriptures, that we talk about him, we proclaim him here in this pulpit, we do it in our kids ministry, through our songs, through our confessions, through the scriptures that we read, we do it with our neighbors and with our co-workers and with our children at home, that we are a people who declare who Jesus is and that as Jesus is being declared. Hearts are burning with the truth of who he is and eyes are being opened to believe it and there's faith being planted in the hearts of men and women. We want to see this transformation take place in people all across our city. That's what we're about. That's what we will spend ourselves on as long as God sees fit to leave a church called Emmaus in existence. Chapter 2, verses 9 through 20. Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 9 through 20. One last time, that's Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 9 through 20. I can see it. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat of the Heronite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly, and someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate into the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I did not yet, I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for uh, good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Heronite and Tobiah the Ammonite heard, uh, servant uh, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will rise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Good morning. 
It's a joy for me to be here this morning with you. Uh, thank you, band. That last song reminded me of uh, one of my personal heroes of the faith, Charles Spurgeon. That was actually his favorite song, and uh, it was a day similar to the day we have ourselves outside uh, on the day that he was converted to Christ, actually. A, a massive blizzard pushed him into a Methodist church, and there uh, he found a pastor. was not there either because he was snowed at home, and uh, just an ordinary average Joe stepped up into the pulpit and uh, in a simple, rugged, Easy to explain away, presenting the gospel, and for the first time, Spurgeon's eyes were opened. And uh, it's one of the reasons here at Emmaus why we're hesitant to close, even when the weather is bad. And uh, also a good reminder to us that uh, you guys need to be ready in case the pastors don't make it when he's going to have to preach. So, <laughs> so be prepared at all times. <laughs> uh, for those of you who are visiting us, my name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here. It's truly a joy for us to have you here, especially today. Um, Hope you've already felt that welcome from our members. Uh, If you haven't yet, uh, please stop by our Connect table out in the lobby. Uh, We'd love to get to know you better and give you a gift. It is a coffee mug, and uh, it is a great coffee mug. So we'd love for you to take that and go forward. Uh, Emmaus, we love you guys so much. Uh, Pastor and Ronnie and I were just discussing in the lobby earlier. Uh, Just a reminder of what a grace it is to, to be a part of this body with you and to serve you. Uh, We were just reflecting even this morning we had an individual member who was driving all over town trying to find a store to buy bread for our communion. Uh, Personally saw one of our members show up an hour and a half before service to shovel the sidewalks for us. And uh, we even had uh, coffee donated to us since Colony was not uh, able to make it in this morning. Uh, So you guys stepped up and, man, it's just so gracious of you. And uh, it truly is an honor to be your pastor. We have a lot of work to do today as we get to jump into the text, but I do want to Give a couple of announcements. Uh, we were right when we said women's retreat was going to go quickly. So I believe online registration says closed, but that is actually misleading. There are possibly a few slots left. So if you're interested in going still, contact Julie Masson, uh, and uh, she can uh, put you on a waiting list. There's a good chance we'll still have a few spots available for you to do that. Uh, we also have a men's Bible study coming up the first Saturday in April, April 6th, and that will be each Saturday for six weeks straight. Uh, We're going to be diving into the book of Daniel, and uh, we're doing things a little bit differently. Rather than separating into small groups of men, we're going to be together as a large group, and uh, really excited for that time of fellowship. More information for that should be coming out soon. Uh, And finally, we want to pray for Italy. Um, Many of you probably know right now two of our pastors, uh, Pastor Sam and Josh, uh, as well as Sam's wife, Shannon, and uh, Laura and Colin Campbell are currently in Italy right now. And uh, it's just such a gracious gift from the Lord. Uh, This desire to plant and be a part of kingdom work in Italy sprang up many, many years ago. And uh, the Lord laid it on our hearts. I I believe it started whenever a man who was translating in Italian one of our sermons uh, showed up at church one day. And we started talking to him. So in all that, though, uh, God has just been graciously opening doors. And uh, we have a team there right now who is working uh, with our pastor, Francesco, and his wife, Claudia, in their church. And... uh, we're just really excited to be a part of the ministry that's going on there, and I uh, hope that in these moments, your heart will be inclined to them as well. Um, you will love them, and you will uh, want to be a part of the gospel ministry they're doing there. So we want to pray and uh, ask that the Lord would bless this time, and uh, we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness in choosing us. Lord, we thank you for Christ the perfect sacrifice, and for your spirit, who's a guarantor of our salvation, Lord. It is a joy to be here this morning amongst your people. And it's not lost on me 
the gift of grace that they are. Lord, we want to lift up right now our team in Italy, and this church in Italy, and their pastor and his wife, Francesco and Claudia. Lord, we pray that you would do big things, Lord. We pray that the gospel would be faithfully proclaimed and that your spirit would move in and through them, Lord. Even now, as Pastor Sam is preaching uh, to this congregation, Lord, we pray that you would be with him, Lord, and he would encourage these saints, and Lord, that he would proclaim the gospel faithfully like he does for us here. Lord, we pray that in a city and in a land where empty religion has led to cold, dead hearts uh, for thousands of years, Lord, we pray that the gospel would spring anew in the city of Genoa. Lord, we pray the same thing for us here, Lord. Lord, it's not lost on us that we have a real enemy. Lord, there is opposition to the gospel, and there is opposition to the work of your kingdom. And Lord, we pray today that we would learn what it is to be faithful in the midst of that, as we see your servant Nehemiah faithfully following you. Lord, we love you. Open our hearts to be challenged by your word. May your spirit teach us and ultimately, may we see Christ as glorious through it. In your name I pray, amen. There's a famous poet that once asked a very important question, why can't we be friends? I won't sing the song that goes with that to spare your ears, but certainly this question has a much deeper meaning than just the simple phrase, right? This idea of unity is one that is craved and sought after by peoples across time and space throughout history. We long for a day when wars cease and a day when we can just get along with each other. However, despite our best efforts and our greatest plans, we've seen that unity is an ever-elusive MacGuffin. Without going into all the nuance and details of that, our answer for why is this the case is fairly plain. It started in Genesis chapter 3 when a serpent led the man and woman of God into sin. And from that day forward, walking out of that garden, the seed of the serpent has sought for nothing more than to destroy and eradicate the people of God. We see Christians have undergone persecution throughout history. The people of God have found themselves at the edge of the sword throughout all time. We think back, and it's not very hard to point to numerous and gruesome incidents, right? Pharaoh and Herod killing babies amongst God's people. Roman emperors impaling Christians on stakes, dousing them in oil, and then setting them ablaze to light their parties. Throughout time and history, we've seen that there is an enemy of the church, And today we're going to be looking at Nehemiah and find that while he has been so clearly blessed by the Lord to do this good work, we see that not everyone is excited about the work that he's doing, that there's opposition to it. And today as we open up the word of God, it's been my prayer for you, Emmaus, that you'd be encouraged. You wouldn't be surprised by the opposition that comes before you when you seek to live faithfully to the gospel. You wouldn't be surprised when your name is slandered and you're alienated by those you thought were your friends whenever you stand firm for the gospel, but that you'd be encouraged that God is up to something. The same God who led Nehemiah back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls is building his kingdom in 2019. He's building it here in North Kansas City. So this is our encouragement. As we look upon this God and his faithfulness to his people, we want to be faithful to him as well. 
So a way of quick recap, we're in the book of Nehemiah. We're going to be journeying here for a long time. And with each passing week, I get more and more excited about the book of Nehemiah. Uh, just to kind of give those of you who are joining us for the first time today a quick recourse in where we've been. We have this man, Nehemiah, who was an official in the king of Persia's court. The entirety of the people of Israel have been taken here after they were overthrown by the Assyrian Empire, taken to Babylon, and now find themselves under the rule of the Persian government. Nehemiah inquires, what is the status of the holy city, Jerusalem, where his fathers were made to dwell? And the news he gets is troubling to him. He finds that the city is in utter and complete ruin. And this so moves Nehemiah that he's driven to weep. And he rips his clothes and he begins to deny food and fast and seek the Lord. You see, as he's praying and reading his scripture, he realizes that God has promised that he will one day restore this holy city. His people will turn back to him. And so Nehemiah begins to pray that he would be the answer to that prayer, that God would use him to rebuild this holy city. And we see this is exactly what God begins to do. Last week, we see Nehemiah walk into the presence of the Persian king, the most powerful man in the world. And he requests that he send him back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. And God, in his kindness, answered this request. And so today, we're picking up right where that left off. In verses 9 and 10, we see Nehemiah begins to make the journey home. It says this, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letter. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But Sanballat and the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this. It displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. If we stop and reflect for just a moment, it is evident that the hand of God is all over this situation, is it not? We have this man, Nehemiah. He walks into the throne room of the most powerful man in the world and says, I want your permission to send me to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls, and I want you to pay for it. Will you do this? And he says, absolutely, I will. So God is kind to him in this. Such a bold gesture could have easily resulted in his death. He's a very powerful man. He stood to lose his position and even his life, and yet God in his kindness grants him this request. And the king sends him along, not only with his endorsement and letter, but even we see in verse 9 with his army as well. So he sends him into the providential governance onward to Jerusalem so that he might begin to rebuild the city. And we see it is clear that God's hand is upon him. The king's favor is upon him. And yet what we see is not everybody is that excited to see him arrive. We're introduced to these two men, Sanballat and Tobiah, these provincial governors of the region. And upon hearing of their arrival to restore the fortunes of Israel, they are very concerned and very upset. Now, it needs to be said, likely there's much nuance to the reason for their anger. Probably they are upset as providential governors that there's a very good chance that they might be out of a job. Perhaps part of their region is about to be turned over to somebody else. Maybe even they stand to lose some money along the way. But when you cut straight through it to the heart of the matter, what we see, the real offense and the real anger for them is they do not want to see the people of God flourish. They do not want to see the people of God flourish. And while this is jarring for us to hear this, it's not a surprise to us, Christian. And I don't say that casually or lightly, but the reality is that this opposition has always been present. 
from Philistine armies to the Communist Party, the people of God have suffered under the sword. From the Colosseum in Rome to prisons in Iran, we know that we have a real enemy. The same serpent who tempted Adam and Eve in the garden still plots for the destruction of the people of God to this day. For me, the most jarring point of this, though, is not necessarily even the fact that there is opposition, but who it comes from. When we look at this man, Sanballat, he's kind of an interesting character. His name is literally that of a Babylonian moon god, the god of life. And yet when we start to probe history and his personal life a little more, we see that in some ways he shows signs of one who is actually professed adherence to Yahweh, the God of Israel. In fact, he names his two sons in such a way that would cause us to assume that in some ways he worships God. And yet what we see is though he would claim some fealty to the Lord, although he would say that he worships the one true living God, on the side he has an enterprise going in which the downfall of the people of God is actually personally benefiting to him. And he would like nothing more than for them to stay that way. And friends, there are plenty of sandbillets among us today. There are many among us who would use the fears and doubts of Christians to sow skepticism so that they might build a platform to speak at conferences, or that they might build a following so they can sell their books. And hear me, friend, this is wickedness. Just like Sanballat, someone who proclaimed fealty to the Lord, but also lived amongst the world and even took advantage of the people of God, to this day, there's wrath awaiting for those who would do the same. Sometimes our eyes must be open for those who would mislead the people of God, even under the banner of Christians themselves. So we see for Nehemiah, he has this hard task ahead of him. He's walking into the face of opposition, and he finds himself greatly opposed. But we also see that he is greatly blessed. The clear hand of God is upon him, as well as the backing of the royal throne. And so from my imagination, what this is going to look like is Nehemiah is going to come riding into town like the proverbial new sheriff in town and start kicking doors down and telling people where they need to go and what they need to do, right? This man has confidence. God's on my side. But that's not what he does. Let's turn to verses 11 through 16. Nehemiah says this, So I went to Jerusalem and was there for three days. Then I arose in the night, and I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode, and I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. And when I went on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. And then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall and turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews and the priests and the nobles and the officials and the rest who were to do the work. So here we see Nehemiah has confidence. He has the Lord's hand upon him. It's clear that God has blessed this endeavor. And yet when he arrives to Jerusalem, he pauses. He takes three days. We're not sure what he's doing during this time. Perhaps maybe he's meeting people, uh, getting a feel for the lay of the land. 
Maybe, honestly, he's just resting because he knows how hard the job ahead of him is going to be. We see he goes and he waits till the cover of nightfall. He starts kind of this reconnaissance mission where he's going around so that no one would know what he's up to. He's peeking in on the nooks and crannies of the wall to see the task that waits before him. And for some, as they look at that, they would probably assess this, that Nehemiah just didn't really have enough faith. He was a man who, even though he saw the good hand of God upon him, was hesitant to do the work of God. I would like to challenge that notion and push back against that. I think the greater reality in front of us here is not that Nehemiah lacked faith and not that Nehemiah lacked zeal. I can think of few people who have more faith or zeal than this man does. For a man to weep for four months straight because of the plight of his people shows one who has passion for a cause. In fact, probably no one in the entire history of the earth, no man had more passion for the people of God's restoration than this man. He was willing to risk it all in order to see their fortunes restored. And yet what we see is when he gets here, he remains calculated. He continues with the plan. And as Pastor Josh pointed out last week, we're confronted by the reality that sometimes zeal and wisdom and planning are not antithetical to each other. Certainly, emotions are a good thing for us. They have the ability to grab us by the shoulders and shake us where we're at and say, wake up, go do something for the Lord. But oftentimes, it's my fear that we put more stock in emotionalism than it's able to bear and hold. Certainly, the people of Israel had great zeal whenever God brought them out of the land of Egypt, right? And he takes them to the very foot of Mount Sinai, and they see this giant smoke cloud and fire appear. And he says, wait, and Moses goes up to obtain the law from God. And in his zeal, in their zeal, the people of Israel say, we're ready to worship God now. So let's get all our things together and melt it down and make for ourselves a golden image out of a calf. With the great irony that all the while God is literally carving on stone tablets with his finger, do not make carved images of me. So we see in this case, zealousness, while admirable, can lead to folly. While God is the giver of our emotional faculties, he's also the giver of all our faculties, including our calculated wisdom and our planning. There is a list of far too many people who have sought to do great things for the kingdom of God, who have only caused more harm than good because they went out untrained, with no moral accountability, no theological conviction, and a lack of strategic planning, only to leave fires that we're still putting out to this day. So it is that wisdom and zeal are both gifts of God, and we do well to use both of them. We do well to use both of them. It's one of the reasons here at Emmaus that we want to train men before we send them out. So planning without prayer and passion and also passion without planning both lead to pragmatism. We do it because it works and not because it's what God has told us to do. Both of these are folly and we do well to avoid each one. The road to compromise is easily found and we do well to learn from Nehemiah in both his zeal and his wisdom in planning. So we see Nehemiah is calculated, but it's not because he's Afraid? Well, maybe he is a little bit afraid. But it's not because he's hesitant to do the work of God. He's wanted this badly. And we know this is a man who's bathed the situation in prayer. He's been on his knees waiting for God to send him. 
And so he waits till the moment's right in order that he might gather this people to do the work. And here we see this happen in verses 17 and 18. It says this, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruin, its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words of the king spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Notice here, Nehemiah brings together the people. It's time to unleash this plan. And rather than slapping them over the head with a stick, he identifies with them. He doesn't say, you guys have bumbled this. Look at the mess that you've made. I'm here to try to clean this up. He says, we are in trouble. He said, your pain is my pain. See how this city is in derision. Another way to say that, see the disgrace that has come upon the city of Jerusalem. And what makes this more tragic when we really start to peel back the meaning behind this as Nehemiah looks out and he sees the crumbled wall and he sees these burnt gates. Nehemiah does not look at this and say, man, the engineers in this town were bogus. He doesn't say, This army has failed you guys. They didn't train. They fought like wimps, and now look where you're at. No, Nehemiah knows their plan is not, or their problem is not because of armies, and it's not because of engineers, but it's because of idolatry. It's because of idolatry. You see, when God chose this people, he said himself in Deuteronomy, he said, I did not choose you because you were the strongest. He said, in fact, I chose you because you were the wimpiest. He said, I chose this weak people so that I might display my power to all the nations that I am the one true God of heaven and earth. And we see throughout Israel's history this embarrassment of riches given to them by the hand of God as he goes into Egypt and confronts the most powerful man in the world and he pulls out these Hebrew slaves by making a sham of their Egyptian gods and then destroying their entire army at the Red Sea. We see this pattern continues as God fights the battles for his people. He tells them, here's how you're going to defeat Jericho. You're going to get your trumpets, you're going to get your family, and you're going to walk around in circles. Then blow the trumpet, and the walls are going to come down. We consider Gideon. Gideon shows up with this ragtag group of goofballs who are responsible for fighting the strongest army of the entire world. It's essentially like bringing a third-grade basketball team to come play the Golden State Warriors, and God looks at them and says, "Uh, you're a little too strong, we're going to need to make some cutbacks. Then he looks at them again and he says, nope, cut it more. And what God's doing here is he wants to strip away any shred of a doubt that there was any moment in which it was the strength of this people that caused them to rise up. But it was his hand of favor that has done this. And this is to be a beacon for all the world to see that the God of Israel has the goods. You want life and abundance, you go to him. You want death and destruction, you go to Molech, you go to Bel. They'll give you plenty, but if you want what we have, you go to the God of Israel. This is what they were supposed to be. And yet we see the tragedy as this wall stands as a gravestone memorial of a people who turn their back on the one true living God. 
And when Nehemiah sees this, he says it's a disgrace. It should be intolerable of us to look and see the people of God lying in ruin amongst the nations, the people we're supposed to bless, that God's using us to bless. Instead, we lie in ruin. I imagine probably the words of Moses echoed hauntingly through the streets of Jerusalem in Deuteronomy 8, 17 through 20. Listen to this. He says, this is before they even entered the land. He says, beware lest you say in your heart that my power and might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. And he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after the other gods that serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so you shall perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. So Nehemiah sees this and his heart goes out. He's clinging to the promise of God that God would restore this people. And he says, rise up and rebuild this city. Men of Israel, families of Israel, rise up and defend yourselves. He's not calling them to go grab a sword and a spear so that they might defend themselves from advancing enemies. He's saying, defend yourselves from sin, because that's why these walls have fallen down. That's why we're in the mess we're in today. And church, we do well to heed the warning of Nehemiah. For you see, no longer does God attach his name to a city. No longer is God's name attached to a nationality, but God's name is attached to a people that he is building up, the church. Jesus Christ came and he died. And when he did, he purchased for himself a people throughout time and space. And to this day, he is building up this people, brick after brick a holy dwelling place, pleasing for him. And friends, you are those bricks. They're not bricks of stone. They're people. It's the church. And friends, my heart hurts when I look and see and scan that all too often, just like Jerusalem, we lie in ruin in the presence of our enemies. Whenever we allow lust and pride and anger and slander to ravage our homes and our people, we lie in ruins amongst the very people who were sent to bless. The city that God has erected so that we might be a blessing to the nations lies in ruins because of sin. And so church, I beg you, rise up and build. Build up your defenses. It should be intolerable for us to see the children of God suffering under the affliction of pornography. It should be intolerable for us to see the children of God falling in divorce. It should be intolerable for us to see the children of God slandering our brothers and sisters. So rise up, church. Rise up. This is not a command to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but this is a God-ordained, Christ-bought, spirit-powered endeavor. Christ is building you into something glorious. And we want to see that. This city needs to see that. This city needs to say, that girl is a little weird. But you know what? I wish that my husband loved me like she does, like hers does. I wish I loved my husband like she does. 
They need to say, man, that guy, I don't know really what he does for fun because I've never seen him show up to the company party plastered, but he always has a smile on his face, so I'm guessing he's doing something right. The world needs to see that church. And by God's grace, he's doing that in us. As he's transforming our minds, he's transforming our lives through the Holy Spirit. We're being made into a holy dwelling place, acceptable, as beacons to a world who needs to know him. I imagine this scene was almost something like off of Braveheart as William Wallace is riding in front of the troops on his horse. Or maybe Winston Churchill as he addresses the parliament and says, there's not a chance we will ever bow the knee to German Nazi aggressors. And by God's grace, we see the people of Israel respond. They rise up and they strengthen their hands so that they might build. And for Nehemiah, this has to be a relief. Certainly still, there's a lot of work left to do, but the first step is there. God has answered his prayer. He's brought him to this people, and this people are responding to the truth. But we see yet again in verse 19 and 20 that not everyone shares the same exuberance that Nehemiah has for God's people. Read this with me. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Heshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you planning to rebel against the king? But then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right to claim in Jerusalem. So we see a third antagonist is introduced into this story. In fact, these three men will provide the foil of this story. Oftentimes they're popping up in adversity against the people of Israel in this endeavor. And I'm very struck by, of all the things here, we've already talked about, we're not surprised that there's opposition to the Lord's work. But one thing that surprises me most is Nehemiah's response to them. Nehemiah's response is striking. Certainly for such a man, he carried a lot of weight right? In fact, this charge of them, you're rebelling against the king, even they know that doesn't have any weight. They saw him come marching into town with the royal army and banners behind them. They've seen the letter and the king's edict that went out. They know that he's not breaking any laws. In fact, Nehemiah could have easily went forward and said, I'm Nehemiah. I come from the court of the king with the king's army, the king's resource, and the king's blessing. You will not impede this work or you will suffer the wrath of the crown." He could have easily said this, or he could have said, read the paper that got sent out. But he doesn't say that. In fact, we know probably for most of these men, their reaction is based maybe off of Ezra 4, which is a recorded event that happened about a decade before that when the people were trying to rebuild the temple. And uh, many of the inhabitants of Jerusalem said, hey, let us build it with you. And they said, no, we're good. This is the work of the people of God. And uh, when they heard that, they begin to inquire of uh, the regional authorities and the king, and the king actually issued an edict to stop building. So likely in this moment, what Sanballat and his horde are doing is they're trying to discourage them by past failure. They're pointing out their past failures and saying, where's your authority come from? It can be taken away from you in a moment's notice. I imagine for most people in here, this is probably the form of persecution that you face more than anything else. Probably most of us in this room have never been placed in a jail cell for our testimony to Jesus Christ. Probably most of us in this room have never been threatened, genuine physical violence or death because of your stance for Jesus Christ. 
but I imagine many of you have heard the jeers. Perhaps as you're being faithful amongst your friends and family, testifying to the goodness of Jesus Christ, you're jeered by realities like the stories published in the Houston Chronicles, and they say, where's your authority come to tell us what's moral and not? Isn't this what you Christians do? In fact, just this week, I was having a discussion with a student who's wrestling with the things of God, and he's wrestling with Christianity, but he's having a hard time reconciling these things with the events of history, like the Crusades and the Spanish Inquisition, Salem Witch Trials. And so oftentimes, this is where we find most obstinance and resistance to Christianity, these jeers from the opposition. And yet we need to be struck by Nehemiah's response. He does not appeal to his royal authority, but he appeals to the fact that he serves the God who is the one who puts kings on their throne and takes kings off the thrones. He's appealing to the God of heaven and earth who has all authority. Maybe perhaps he's thinking back to his contemporary Daniel, who was a part of the first exile and who was brought to Babylon. And this brother Daniel found himself one night summoned because King Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream that disturbed him greatly. And Nebuchadnezzar was greatly disturbed, but he feared because he surrounded himself with a bunch of yes men that they were just going to tell him something that he wanted to hear. So he said, no, you tell me the dream itself and then you interpret it for me. Then I'll believe you. And no one could do it. And he looked and he looked and there was no one who could do it. And yet they inquired of him and said, I believe there's this Hebrew boy on whom the spirit of the living God is upon. He can probably help you out. And Daniel gets there and says, actually, no, I can't. And he's shocked. And he says, but God can. So Daniel interprets this dream. He says, King, your dream was this. You saw this giant statue, its stature and its glory, unmatched by any other. Its head made of gold, chest silver, torso bronze. Its legs were steel and its feet were clay and iron. He said, King, The thing that disturbs you most is what you saw next. You saw this rock that was carved out of nothing, not by human hands. And this rock came and it fell upon the statue and it dashed it to pieces. And this rock endured forever. And Daniel said, King, like these other earthly kingdoms, you are the golden head. But like every other earthly kingdom, there is only one kingdom that lasts forever. And it is the kingdom of God. It is the only rock that will stand for eternity. And we see that this is the hope that Nehemiah had. His hope was not in the legality of his actions, although that is a good thing. His hopes are not in the fact that he had the backing of a king, but his hope was in the fact that he served the one true living God whose kingdom will not end. And so he was banking everything on these promises that God has made that he will bring forth from this earth, a people for himself for all eternity, and he would build up this kingdom of which there will be no end, and the unity that we crave will be found when we all bow the knee and worship Jesus Christ, and he does away with sin once and for all, and we worship him forever. And friends, this hope is the one that we cling to today. We recognize that if we look into the news and see the trajectory of our current social and political climates, we are subject to great fear. We recognize if we look further still at incidents happening in other countries and the persecution of the church, we can easily be overwhelmed with fear. And yet what we remember is like Nehemiah's God, like Daniel's God, we serve the rock of ages whose kingdom will endure forever. 
And though we might find ourselves enduring the jeers of our oppressors, or perhaps even the sword, maybe we have the ridicule of our aggressors, or maybe Sherman tanks, but we know regardless of what happens, the kingdom of God will last forever. And so we hold tight to this inheritance that one day Jesus Christ will return again. And this time he will not come as a baby, but he will come as the conquering king of heaven. And he will establish his kingdom forever. And no man or no authority or no power can take it away. Friends, this is the hope that we have today, Emmaus. And so it's in light of these things that I invite you to consider these three pastoral charges. My first charge to you, church, is to be faithful in the midst of opposition. As we see, Nehemiah found himself maybe in a rare position. Many, maybe like many of us, find ourselves in this day where uh, the authority of the government was actually on his side. And yet what we find is this is not always the case. But we notice his reaction whenever opposition came his way. He remained faithful. He didn't gather the army to go fight Sanballat and Tobiah. But he said, let's build the wall. Let's strengthen ourselves, church. And church, that's my charge to you this day. If you find yourself under the affliction of opposition, just remain faithful. Continue in prayer and trust the promises of God that God is up to something even in hard circumstances and that his kingdom truly will come to fruition. My next charge for you, church, is to be holy. Be holy. Many times throughout history, people have used holiness as almost like this club or this badge of honor to prove their right standing with God. That's not what I have in mind here, church. But as we consider the fact that Jesus Christ, the living God, has made his name to dwell amongst us as his church, and he's given us his spirit, he's purchased our freedom from sin, you're the only group that I can confidently ask to do such a thing with any hope that there actually will be a result. You can be holy because God has made it this way. The Holy Spirit will empower you to do this. And so Christian, press in. Guard your heart. Guard your family. Stand by your brother and sister. See to it that none of us fall into ruin because of sin. But lock arms as we go forward into this city as a holy place where God's name dwells, that even the gates of hell cannot overcome. We have this confidence and promise. And then finally, for the unbeliever and the believer alike, I invite you to consider Jesus Christ, the better Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a very likable and admirable character, isn't he? I mean, consider this man. It would be impossible to believe that he was living in poverty in the Persian government. He was essentially, for some historians, maybe even believe he was the second most powerful man in the entire empire. Probably every food and luxury you can imagine was afforded to him as he sat in the palace alongside the king. And yet when he heard of the plight of the people of God, when he saw that they were ransacked and run down by sin, rather than staying in the cushy court with the king, he left the palace so that he might go and restore the fortunes of the people of God. And friends, consider Jesus Christ, who has done this infinitely better. 
He was in the glories of heaven at the right hand of the Father, and yet he did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped. Yet he empties himself, and he comes down and joins us in the midst of our affliction so that he might buy back and purchase a people pleasing to God. Jesus is the better Nehemiah, for Nehemiah was building a city out of bricks and the walls that ultimately could not keep sin from entering in, and yet Jesus Christ's blood has paid for sin once and for all. Jesus Christ is the better Nehemiah. And if you're here today and you're in him, rejoice, Christian. Rejoice that you have this great champion and savior and live like it. And if you're not, if you're here today and you are not a follower of Christ, know that your place in this story is you are one of the enemies of God. Scripture says this as much. You are an enemy of God. And when his kingdom is established, you yourself will find that you are punished with the rest of the rebels. And so I beg you today, cry out to Jesus Christ. The glory of the gospel is every person in this room was once a rebel of God. We're enemies of God who hated his name, and yet in his kindness, Christ has drawn us to himself, purchased us with his blood. And he will do that for you today if you cry out to him. Do not settle for the false and foreign gods of this world who will leave you bitter and in ruin. But cry out to the God of Israel, cry out to Jesus Christ, and he will build you into this city, pleasing to him, and you will have the hope of glory that one day you will stand with him forever. Friends, Jesus is the better Nehemiah. Our hope is in a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and our inheritance is secure. Let's pray. Jesus, we lift high your name. We thank you that though you had every right to remain at a distance, or that though we deserved punishment, Christ, you chose to come and join us in our affliction. And Lord, it's because of the blood of Christ that we stand here today in awe of who you are. Would we lift up the name of Jesus? And I pray if anyone here today does not know this glorious Savior, I pray that you would stir their hearts, but that they would not be able to walk you out of here without thinking and considering how good you are. And I pray, Lord, that you would do a mighty work in saving them. Lord, for the people of Emmaus, this church, Lord, I thank you so much for them. I thank you that they are holy stones that you are building up into this acceptable dwelling place. And Lord, how there's a promise that one day every tear from their eye will be wiped away and all sin will be forever erased. And yet now, as we find ourselves in that already but not yet period of time, I pray you would encourage them, Lord. I pray that they would defend themselves, not out of human efforts to try to appease you, but by the fact that your spirit indwells them, has given them power to say no to sin and yes to holiness. Lord, I pray that they would do that today. Lord, I pray that our marriages and our families and our work would be bastions of light into a dark world, that there is a city that is founded upon Christ, that is a glorious place, and that others would want everything to be a part of it. Lord, be with us as we close in this time. In your name I pray, amen. Well, friends, we conclude the same way as we do every week at Emmaus, and that's through communion. Uh, so here in just a moment, believers, I invite you to come down to the front and take of this body, and I charge you to remember what you're doing. This is a declarative act. It's not a passive act. It's not a quiet thing. 
although you can be quiet while you do it, but it's declarative. You're saying something when you do this. You're saying that the blood of Christ and the body of Christ was broken for me. We're saying this as a people. And I charge you, let that empower you to keep doing that as you go out from this place. Continue to proclaim the gospel. If you're here today and you are not a Christian, I ask that you don't take this meal. It would be hollow symbolism on your part. It would have no saving power for you. Uh, If you cannot say that you have trusted in the work of Christ, then please abstain from coming. But I would invite you rather to consider who Jesus is. The one who came for his people, the savior of his people, and the rightful king of this world. And pray that he would give you eyes to see him rightly. May us come and take Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.